your Bible to the book of Philippians, if you would, the book of Philippians. Ben is a really gifted teacher. Um, he's a student of the word. He can unravel great mysteries of the Bible. He understands revelation and who the Antichrist is. And so you can ask him. He can handle all the heavy lifting. I'm going to go for some low-hanging fruit this morning. <laughs> I might go, you know, Ben's brilliant and talks, and I'm kind of like, God good, devil bad. You know, so it's like... Um, but I just want to encourage you in a familiar passage of scripture this morning, if I, I could. And Philippians chapter 4, the context is this is a letter that the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of people that have partnered with him in his ministry. They've supported him financially. They've been a safe harbor for him um, relationally. They've been there for him. And so he is eminent in his execution. He is about to be put to death. He's in a Roman prison cell. And so he's writing some final words. And this is the last letter he will write to a group of people, the Church of Philippi. He'll write one more letter, the, the, the book of 2 Timothy, which is to his son and the Lord Timothy, to an individual. But these are, these are really um, personal and they're really sincere words of equipping and encouragement for the church, but also by the Holy Spirit for us today is the church. So in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. So I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all for the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God. Can you say peace of God? which transcends all understanding, like you can't explain it. It makes no sense. It's not rational that you'd have the peace of God. Will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or worthy of praise, think about such things. And whatever you have learned or received, or heard from me, or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Can you say God of peace? God of peace. The peace of God, and the God of peace. Resident within this text that we read is a promise, and it's the promise of something supernatural that can be the reality for you and me as the children of God to experience and walk in and live in supernatural peace in the days that are really filled with stress, pressure, and anxiety. If you'll look in verse 6, it says, do not be anxious about anything. The context of the ministry of peace is in this reality of anxiousness, um, do you know that sociologists, psychiatrists are calling the day in which we live the day, the age of high anxiety? That they say that the multiplicity of reasons for that could really be narrowed down to four primary reasons that drive that anxiousness. They, they say there's uncertainty about the future, circumstances that are uncontrollable, beyond our control, 
relational stress, unreconciled relationships. Anybody know anybody that's at odds with somebody today? Uh, I mean, just the polarization and the acrimony and the anger that's unresolved relationally. And, and so unreconciled relationships. But here's the fourth reason, a preoccupation with ourselves. We see everything in light of ourself. It's always so about me, um, about my preference, about my wish, and about my desire, and this constant comparison that people live in, especially online and social media. And they say that teenagers today live with a level of anxiety, as a, just a chronic level of anxiety that they used to institutionalize people for in the 1950s. That that's become normative. That's like, like we, we expect that. And so the question I have when I read a scripture like this, is it possible that we could live something that's an alternative to the stressed, pressed, um, anxiety-riddled world that we live in? Could we truly walk in the peace of God? Because oftentimes we don't even know. It's become so normalized. We don't even know what's going on in our own hearts. Several years ago, I was uh, working on a project and I got linked up with a guy to help me on an aspect of it and somebody recommended him and so I scheduled this appointment to meet with this guy and never met him before and so I got to his place of business and when I got there, he had this beautiful golden retriever that had a service vest on laying at his feet and it's, it's bad etiquette to ask somebody what their service animal does. I, I don't know if you knew that or not, but it's bad. It's just bad form. But I said, what does your dog do for you, you know? And um, <laughs> he said, well, I'm a combat vet. And I have post-traumatic stress disorder or syndrome. And, and the dog actually can detect when I'm starting to get anxious. And the dog will actually just come and nudge against me, lay against my feet. But if I'm really starting to get anxious, the dog will get up and make eye contact with me, like distract me, like just kind of like lock eyes with me. And then if I'm just really having an episode, the dog will actually climb up into my lap and just kind of like overwhelm me, like distract me, become the, the focal point. And I mean, that was marvelous. I was amazed that I didn't know that you could train dogs to do that. And so we got to talking and got busy with the project. And in a few minutes, the dog gets up, comes around the desk and lays at my feet, just kind of lays right across my feet. And so we kind of kept working, and all of a sudden the dog sits up and just, like, locks eyes with me. <laughs> and it's a true story. And, and then climbs up into my lap, and the guy says, are you doing okay? <laughs> and, and I said, apparently not. It's like, I mean, we don't even know sometimes how much compressed sorrow or unprocessed grief or how wound tight the spring really is within us, you know, that we're coiled up and, and we've just accepted that this is kind of the way it is. We live in these days that are weird and unpredictable and stuff comes at us and it's beyond our control and it doesn't take anything for people to divide and split up and break apart and go into their corners and be at odds with each other and this constant pressure to make sure that I'm measuring up to everybody else or my needs are being met or my voice is being heard and so it leads to this internalized kind of pressing that the scripture would even call anxiety. And I want to differentiate between what I'm talking about and what I'm not talking about. They say that anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness there is today. And mental illness is a different category. It's not necessarily what I'm speaking to today. And the reason I want to say that is because historically in the church, 
The church has not been a safe place for people to deal with mental illness. There's been almost a stigma attached to it. If somebody were to say, you know, I've been diagnosed with this or I got this issue. And if you were to say, I've been diagnosed with cancer, we would come around you with prayer and ministry and stand with you and help encourage you and whatever your journey of treatment would be or whatever. But if somebody says, I've been diagnosed with a mental illness, sometimes we just didn't know what to do with that. And the church needs to be a safe place for people to seek help and ministry at any level. And we, we, we acknowledge the need for, for unique ministry and care and treatments, and we, we, we get that. That's, but we're integrated people. We're body, soul, and spirit. We're, we're holistic as we think about our lives. And there are some things that are just like, they're, they're biological or they're neurological. They're, they're related to our systems. And sometimes it's true, isn't it? It's just like, we think we got a big issue. But remember when, remember when Elijah was depressed after the battle on Mount Carmel? And Jezebel says she's going to kill him. And so he's like, I want to die. And he was just so depressed. He was like, I'm, my life is worthless. And an angel shows up and makes a cake and puts it on the coals and says, eat and then sleep. Like, eat some cake and take a nap. That's like a life verse for me. Like, <laughs> like, like sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is like, I'm going to eat some cake and take a nap. You know, it's, it's kind of like, that's, you know, it's like you th- everything's kind of been blown out of perspective. You've lost perspective. It's just like, yeah, you're a little fussy. You just need a nap. And um, so I, I get it. There's just, we need to have life-giving rhythms and we need to think in terms of our whole person and, and take care of ourselves and all those things. But I'm, I'm, not, I'm not wanting to talk about categorically something that significant of. I want to just talk about that kind of chronic reality that we live in stressful days. And how do we walk that out as the children of God? When it says in verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. Do you know that the online library, Amazon's online library, Kindle, they track every, every underlined sentence or highlighted sentence. Did you know that? That's a shocker, right? They're tracking those things. And Kindle would say that the number one highlighted verse on all of online scripture is that one right there, be anxious for nothing. Do you know that the most highlighted sentence in all of their online literature is from the second book of the Hunger Games series? And it's this sentence, because sometimes things happen to people and they're not equipped to deal with them. Like out of all the things that could be highlighted, that's the most highlighted. It was like, sometimes just stuff happens to us. It's outside of our control. We're victims of circumstances. Uh, we're just fatalistic in terms of how we have to think about our life and existence. Stuff happens, and we can't do a thing about it. And for a believer, it's like, we are not powerless in the face of those things. Do not be anxious for nothing and so when for anything. And so I want to make three observations about peace from this text, and then I want to just show us three prerequisites to receiving and walking in that peace. But just first of all, when it speaks of the peace in this scripture, it's, it's talking about the peace of God, the God of peace, that this is something that's divine in its origin. This is sourced in something beyond 
our circumstances. This is not the peace that comes because you have money in the bank. This is not the peace that comes because you got into the college you wanted to get into. It's not the peace that comes because she said she would go on that second date with you. It's, it's not tethered to a circumstance. It's not the peace that comes because of anything that just happens to circumstantially finally align and come into place. This is trans-circumstantial. It goes beyond our circumstances. This is the peace of God. This is the God of peace. Imagine how much peace God has right now. Imagine if you were God. How much peace would you have? You are in complete control. You have all power. You are never caught off guard. You are never surprised by anything. Nothing ever happens to you that you are unaware of. Um, you never learn, you never have to learn something you didn't know before. You never say things like, you know what just occurred to me? Uh, you never have to think of things that you're always at rest. You're never driven. You're never under threat. You're never under duress. You're never stressed out. You're never worried about the future. You're at peace. This is the kind of peace that it's speaking about. How many of you have ever said, I was so peaceful last night, I could hardly sleep. Like, I just had it up to here. All this peace is killing me. Like, no one ever says that about, we've got too much peace. It's kind of like, it seems elusive and hard to get and easy to lose. We know when we have it, we know when we don't. But this is a peace that is supernatural. It's God's very life. It's God's very presence. It's God's very peace. And the scripture says the fruit of righteousness is peace. The, the result of things being right in our relationship with God through the shed blood of Jesus who has taken our lives and made them one with our maker, Colossians says, and making peace through his body on the cross. Because things are righteous, we can be at peace. God is in the business of making things right. And out of that rightness is a subtleness. Things are brought together. Things are made whole. Things are made complete. And so this is divine. This is sovereign. But this is also, the second observation is that this is a weapon in God's arsenal that he uses to protect us. That this is the peace of God that will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. That is a military term to describe a sent, it's like a sentinel it's like when fear comes in or anxiousness, it's like, no, you have no entry here. How many of you have ever exhausted yourself mentally, just laid in bed at night, just trying to reason your way to some solution, and you're exhausted mentally? This is a peace that guards your mind. This is a peace that, that guards your heart when you want to just start being pulled apart and fragmenting. It just kind of, it's the shalom of God. It makes everything whole and binds us back together. And this is how he uses it in the context. And it goes beyond human explanation. It's like you can't explain it. You have peace when you shouldn't have peace. Because you have peace, not because the circumstances have changed. It's because the presence of Jesus and who he is in our life. And then the third thing is that this is the most countercultural way that we can live in the world today. 
This whole section is in the context of the first few verses of chapter 4 that speaks about some relational tension between two people in the church and Paul's calling them to walk in unity and agreement. But what we as the people of God can bring to the world in which we live is an alternative to the world. It's something so opposite of what the, cur- the current culture has to offer. And whenever we walk and live under the lordship and the rule and the reign of Jesus, we walk in his kingdom and the manifestation of his kingdom is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So we are people of the kingdom. The kingdom is breaking in and in Jesus' established as king and ruler of our hearts and the fruit of his lordship and rulership is peace. Remember in Isaiah 9, we love this passage at Christmas time, and he shall be called the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace and the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end it says the his where his government is established there's the increase an unending peace that's there when you go to your place of employment when you go to your school when you go to those places where you socialize and interact with others and You are those who bring the manifestation of the kingdom. Jesus said to the disciples, when you go into a town, look for the person of peace. Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. They're like their heavenly father when they make for peace. Our feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Wherever we go, God said to the exiles in Babylon, and you shall be led forth. For, come out, so you'd be led forth with joy and go forth in peace. This, this is a trademark of God's people. That we, we, when the world looks at the church, they don't see people that are like just doing groupthink and are just uh, passively agreeing to things, but they see people where a spirit of reconciliation is continually working among them. And the missional component of our loving one another is that they would say they must be disciples of Jesus, look how they love one another. That it's not that there's perfection, but that there's a commitment to righteousness and relationship and making for peace. That's so different than the world in which we live. When people drop their gloves and go to war over the smallest things, look at the church, even as they disagree, they lean in towards one another and let Jesus be Lord and the Spirit to orchestrate their life together. And so how do you walk in this peace? How do you get it? In this text, embedded within it, are the, is the promise that this promise is experienced on the basis of something else. So it's like, this is the result of that. And so I'm not talking about a formula here, but there's a series of commands. There are three commands that we are given in this text that are really the prerequisites to peace. And And the commands are not just like, you should do this. This literally is an appeal to our will. Paul's calling to our freedom of choice. The most fundamental human freedom there is, is our ability to choose how we respond to the things that happen to us and to the people and what people do to us. There's, There's something that is beyond our control a lot of times. A lot of the stuff that happens to us and we experience in life are not by our own choice, where we, we do get caught into the reality that things happen around us and happen to us. But how we respond in those moments 
There's a freedom each one of us have to choose. Viktor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, he was a Holocaust survivor in Auschwitz, and he talks about why the same people in the same set of circumstances, when they weren't literally put to death, but lived in the same circumstances, why did some live and some not? I mean, if he said it was beyond just health reasons, but he said it's this, that he, came, he concluded it was is this one primary thing, that there were people who, in their despair, either became completely subjected to how they were treated and they gave up in despair, or they became the evil that was being done to them. You treat me like this, I'm going to treat you like that. I'm going to come at you in the same spirit that you're coming at in me. And he says, and there's some people that came in those circumstances with a different spirit and an opposite spirit. And so I can't control when I'm allowed to eat in this situation, not even what I'm allowed to eat. But when you put that little moldy, crusty piece of bread in my hand, instead of just greedily consuming it, I'm going to take a piece of it and I'm going to share it with somebody else. You curse me, I bless you. You hate and revile me, I pray for you. It's like, this is my choice. And what Paul is saying is in any situation, in any circumstance, you can choose how you respond to it. You may not always get to choose the circumstance, but you can choose your response to it. And this is what Paul is saying. In any situation, when you're about to be overwhelmed, when you're about to be filled with anxiousness, in every situation with prayer and thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. So, and be anxious for nothing. So in your roommate situation, in your work situation, in whatever situation you're in, when you're about to do this, I want you to do this instead. And so he gives us these three commands that are addressed and appeal to our freedom of choice and a response. And so here's the first one. Magnify God. So rejoice in the Lord. And I'll say it again. Rejoice in the Lord. So rejoice in what? doesn't say rejoice in the horrific circumstance. Rejoice that you just got rear-ended at the intersection. I'm so glad my car got creamed today. That was, I'm just really glad for that. Um, what is he saying here? Do you know that the opposite of joy is not sadness? Because to rejoice is to be joyful again and again in God. So, so rejoice in who God is and what he has done. So it's, 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 it's a pasture of praise. It's a stance, a position, a choice of praise. The opposite of joy is not sadness. The opposite of joy is hopelessness. It's despair. And with God, we are never without hope. So think of the context for, for this. Who's writing these words? Because if I was just saying be anxious for nothing, you, should have, you could have reason to be suspicious of those words. And isn't it true that the minute we start saying something like that, be anxious for nothing, we immediately want to qualify like, oh, you don't know my story. You don't know who I'm married to. I mean, you don't know my family of origin. You don't know where I work. We immediately start wanting to qualify. Like, we don't really do that with other commands, like, do not murder. And we're like, yeah, right. You, can, you want me to go my whole life and never murder. You know, we, <laughs> but we get something like this, be anxious for nothing. And immediately, like, right, that's ridiculous. You don't know. Ever hear words like this, do not worry in the Bible? Who said those words? Do not worry. Has Jesus ever gone through any hardship or suffering? Who said, do not be anxious for anything? Paul, sitting in a Roman prison cell on the eve of his execution, imminent execution. He has suffered much for the gospel. The guy in prison is writing to the people outside of prison. Hey, hang in there, rejoice. Put your trust in God. Aren't we supposed to be writing to the guy in prison and encouraging him? 
And he's writing unto us saying, rejoice in the Lord. What am I saying is Paul's hardship, the hardship of Jesus. They're the ones that said, don't worry and don't be anxious for anything. We're never going to we're never going to top their story. You want to go toe to toe with difficulties in life and story? We're never going to top their stories. And they're the ones calling us to this posture that Paul is saying, even in prison, I'm not bound. I'm not limited. The gospel is not hindered. Jesus's presence isn't limited here. And they tell us that one of the number one reasons for anxiousness or kind of a depressed perspective is this preoccupation with ourselves. And the first thing that Paul calls the, the, the people to is to take this posture of praise. And when I do that, I interrupt this preoccupation with myself because praise shifts the focus. It takes it off of me. I'm not magnifying the problem, hyper-focused on the problem, or even hyper-focused on myself. But I lift my head, and I see something bigger. I'm reminded again of whose I am. I reminded myself of whose, life my hand, or whose hands my life is really ultimately in. That I find myself kind of like the glory and the lifter of my head. And I see a different picture, and I reframe my circumstances in light of God's truth in light of God's beauty and the significance of who he is. And when I begin to praise him, I interrupt this misplaced focus on myself. And this is why Paul says, when you're about to be overwhelmed and anxious and you don't have a golden retriever around to climb in your lap, this is what I want you to do. I want you to lift your head and I want you to begin to magnify God. I want you to choose a response of praise in that moment. It's not that you're pretending that your circumstances aren't real. It's not that you're not, we, we traffic in reality. We're not denying the facts, but we're just seeing something even greater than that. God's people have always been a singing people. I read a story once that was in a newspaper in San Antonio of a guy that, and his wife had a little parakeet named Chippy that was in a little birdcage. And the wife went away for the weekend, and when she was coming back, the husband decided he better clean up, get the house ready, and so he's vacuuming, and he looks up, and he sees the birdcage, and he sees all these seeds and feathers and droppings, and he goes, oh, I should clean that up. So he unhooks the, the hose, and he gets the wand, and he opens the cage, and he starts to vacuum the cage, and then the phone rings. So in that moment, he turns and looks at the phone, and he hears this <laughs> sound, and he looks, and Chippy's gone, and... So he turns off the vacuum cleaner, rips open the canister, rips open the bag, starts digging in the dirt and dust, and he sees these two little eyes just looking at him, and he grabs this little blob of dirt. So he panics, and he runs into the bathroom, turns on the bathtub faucet, just sticks the bird under there. And next thing you know, he says, I'm just holding this tiny little skeleton in my hand. And so he grabs the blow dart, and, and then he just puts Chippy back in the cage, and Chippy's just kind of <laughs> sitting there. And later, the guy who wrote the story followed up, and he said, hey, how's Chippy doing? He goes, you know, Chippy's doing OK, but he just doesn't sing as much as he used to sing. <laughs> and it's kind of like, here you and I are, you know, or one day we're just sitting there singing our little Chippy songs, and life's good. And then out of nowhere, wham, we get blown over and drowned and sucked in. And, like, and then we're just sitting there stunned and looking around, like, lost our song. The devil's job isn't to get you to do bad things. The devil's job is to get you to take your eyes off of Jesus. And if he can do that, he'll steal your song. 
And as God's people, we have always sang our way through. We have sung our way through the desert. We've sung our way through the storm. We've sung our way through the darkness. We've sung our way through the prison. We are always a people who lift up the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his light. We magnify the power and the beauty and the truth of who God is and who he's revealed himself to be. And the darkness gets pushed against the devil hates your song. That's why when we sang this morning, it wasn't just preliminary. Let's, let's sing our song so we can get to the real important stuff, the sermon, and then we'll go to Denny's. That, that it's kind of like, we'll just... No, what happens is transformational. God spoke in each service this weekend a word of prophecy and encouragement about what happens in his presence. Healing happens in his presence. Questions get answered in his presence. The one moment in his presence can answer to a thousand needs. In your presence is fullness of joy. Your right hand is pleasure forevermore. There's, so why does the scripture says, put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness? You put it on. So that's all Paul is saying is put on the garment of praise. Not praising God for the circumstances. The circumstances may not even change in the short term. But take that posture and begin to lift your voice and it pushes against the darkness. The enemy can't stand there for the spirit of heaviness. We put on the garment of praise, rejoice in the Lord. It shifts the focus, and Jesus is the one who rules and reigns in that moment. And then the second thing, pray your emotions. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. I'm just going to real quickly mention these next two. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. You see, if praise shifts the focus, prayer shifts the burden. So I refocus my life in light of who God is. It reframes everything. This is Goliath taunting this army of Israel, and Saul and his soldiers can only see this obstacle in their way, this, this, this giant. David looks at the giant and sees God, and sees the giant in comparison to God, and that's no fight. It's our, our focus has shifted, but this is shifting the burden. Prayer is like, how do I take this care now, and I cast that on the Lord? Because he's big enough to handle it. He's good enough to handle it. He's willing to handle it. The prayer that's referenced here is not just any kind of prayer. In the context of emotional management, kind of this anxiousness, the topic here, it's, it's a prayer that doesn't just state the request, but it goes beneath that. What are the feelings that's fueling that need? So when it says, present your requests to God, that same statement is used one other time in the New Testament when the angels showed up to the shepherds in Bethlehem and they sent them to Jerusalem to, or to see or Bethlehem to see this newborn baby that's causing heaven to be excited. And they said this to each other, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that the angels have presented to us. That at face value, it looks like there's just a baby there, but underneath that is cause for great joy because there's a truth about who that baby is. And not everybody gets to see that. Not everybody is in on that. But the angels presented that to us. Paul's saying, when you come in prayer, here's your issue. Go beneath that and present that to God. So what's the fear? What's the emotion? God's not threatened by your rawness. He wants you to be honest. He, he can handle your pain. He's not asking you to be less than human. He's not asking you to pretend when I was a senior pastor at the age of 26, my wife and I planted a church in Stanwood, Washington, Kamano Island. 
And people would begin to come and they would tell me the most horrific stories. And I thought I had to have profound things to say to people. But man, I, I had limited experience. I wasn't trained. And people would just start telling me all this stuff. And I, you know, I just, I was like, well, good luck with all that. You know, I don't know. And, um, but I discovered something. It wasn't just about having profound things to say. It was about profoundly listening. There was something therapeutic just in the fact that somebody was listening to them is they got to talk it out. I would pray with them, obviously, encourage them in the scripture, maybe refer them to to further help. But the bottom line is you have a God who listens. He has something to say to you. But present the request. I had a guy recently asked me to pray for him. For a, he said he's in his forties, and he said, "I want to have a wife. I need. I just want to get married." And I just felt like in the moment the Holy Spirit said, "Ask him what he's afraid of." And it was kind of an odd thing. And I said, "Well, what are you afraid of? I mean, we can pray for that. Yeah, you want a wife, but what are you afraid of?" And he just stopped for a moment, and he kind of got emotional. He said, "I'm afraid my family thinks I'm a loser." He said, "I'm afraid I'm going to be alone the rest of my life." I'm afraid I'll never be a dad. I said, why don't you tell, why don't you tell Jesus that? Because we can ask for a wife. But what's going on in your heart? Present that. See, that's what Paul's saying. When your heart is overwhelmed, don't just pretend that you've got to pretend it's not okay. It's okay to not be okay in that moment and bring that to Jesus. And that's where the exchange happens, where he takes our sorrow and replaces it with his peace, and we pray till the peace comes. And then the third thing is, think about what you think about. Remember the context again, anxiety versus peace. Listen to this. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, anything is worthy of praise, excellent, think about these things. What is Paul saying? You can choose what you think about. Isn't most of what causes anxiety in people based in hypotheticals and untrue things. Most of, science proves this, like research proves this. Most of what we worry about in life has never happened, there's never going to happen. A lot of what we worry about has happened, but we can't change it. Um, And even the stuff that is true that we could worry about, you know, worrying isn't going to change it at all. And so what does the scripture say? He'll keep in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. And Paul's saying, I'm giving you permission to think on things that are good, lovely. Doesn't mean that you don't face reality and aren't informed on current events of what's going on in the world and keeping track of real things that are going on in life. But what do you allow yourself to marinate in? What is saturating your thoughts? What are you ruminating in in terms of just chewing on over and over in your thinking? Because whatever you continually, habitually intake and think on and dwell on and meditate is going to become a stronghold, a mindset that's going to be established. And Paul's saying you can have a mindset of peace established. And he's talking broadly in life. There's good things, whatever is good. Social media, the the news, everything drives us so often on the things that are bad and negative that you can find what you're looking for. There's some things look and you'll find, you you can find things that are admirable. See good things in people too, not just the bad things. So what are you choosing to think on then that, you know, the most recent brain research is showing that we have a neuroplasticity to our brain that we can actually re almost change and reshape and direct how our thought process work in our mind and we can begin to have a renewed mind. But think on these things. Why, why do you think your pastor encourages you to be in the word all the time? 
so that our mind would be renewed through the washing of the water of the word. And when I met my wife for the first time, I spoke at a junior high camp that she was at with her church. She wasn't a junior higher. She was an adult with junior high kids there. I always feel like I need to qualify that, you know. And uh, we met for a week. I lived in Wyoming. She lived in Oregon. And then after that week of camp, I ended up moving to Jamaica and did a year-long mission trip in Jamaica, which, by the way, if you're going to do a year-long mission trip, I highly recommend Jamaica. And for a year, we wrote letters back and forth. So we met her one time, one week, and then never saw her again for over a year. But we wrote letters every week for an entire year. So if you're under the age of 40 and you don't know what that is, ask somebody older. Those like stamps and envelopes, and you write and wait for a response like a long time. But I would get these letters from Sandy every week. And I would go and I would sit on a beach and I would open them up and it would, I'd begin to read them and it would be like, Dear Randy. And I go, Dear Randy. I wonder what she means by Dear Randy. <laughs> I wonder if she means like, Dear Randy. Dear Randy. And I would take almost every word and sentence and I would just let it just sit in my thoughts and just tumble around in my heart. And I wanted to know her. And I savored her words because I loved the author. And why do we encourage you to spend time in your word because we just want to check a box or do a duty or because we love the author? And that we open the scriptures and they reveal to us Jesus. And it shapes our understanding of who he is and who we are in him and who we've been made to be and what our life is about. And, and so we live with a different perspective and way of viewing the world and thinking about things. And just like when Jesus came out of the wilderness and Satan attacked him and Jesus said, it is written. What is he saying? That, that word saturated mind came out of him and said, you're lying. That's not true. And don't you want to kind of have that grid in place as you're going through the days and here comes this circumstance and it wants to present yourself to you as a lie, a truth presented as a lie and, or the reality of what it is. And you can just say, you're lying, Satan. That, that's, not, that's not what's true. There's, this is what's true. And that's why Paul's saying, have a mind that's renewed. So, so here comes the anxiousness. Here comes the heaviness. Here comes the pressure. Here comes the opposition. Here comes the uncontrollable circumstance. Here comes the angry person. Here comes the whatever. And I, in this moment, Jesus, I just choose to magnify you and praise you. You're a good God. I love you. I give you thanks. Thank you for loving me, for your spirit that was, was within me. And I began to take that. And God, here's the issue. This, this is a little concerning to me. I'm afraid my son or daughter is never going to really know you in the way that I really have raised them to, and they seem far from you. But Jesus, instead of being fearful, I'm going to trust you with that and, 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 and exchange this for your peace here in this moment. And I'm going to set my mind on things above. It's just, can we be people who just walk in something different? I want to pray for you, and I'm going to ask if you'd open your hands and just in front of you there and We live in a day when it's a rare commodity to know peace. And that's why it is so countercultural. But we want to be people of peace. And I just speak peace over you today. I speak peace to your troubled heart. 
this just sense even strongly just somebody your heart for almost like all week has just been greatly troubled and it might be rooted in a real circumstance and it's almost like when Jesus showed up to the disciples in the upper room after the resurrection and they were afraid and disillusioned and disappointed and he just shows up and he says peace peace and I just feel like Jesus is standing before you today and he's just saying peace shalom you're not coming apart you're being made whole and it's like Jesus is taking your heart in his hand and he's just holding it securely and there's a restfulness there's a settledness it's not because things have changed circumstantially but it's the presence of the Holy Spirit with you right now may the fruit of peace come forth in your life today I speak peace over your marriage. I speak peace over your family. I speak peace over your friendships. We speak peace over this house, this, this community of faith. We speak peace to a troubled city that's being marked by violence and discord. We speak peace in Jesus' name. Jesus, may your kingdom be established. May we seek first your kingdom and righteousness so that peace can come. God, I thank you for your favor and I thank you for your trustworthiness and your faithfulness. And we fix our eyes on you, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Maybe you need to write a letter to somebody, maybe to send an email or call. The Bible says as much as it's possible, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You're not responsible for the response or behavior of others, but as much as it depends on you, have you done what you can do? Maybe you need to say yes to Jesus, that a life of peace begins by coming to the only one who can make things righteous. The blood of Jesus cleanses from unrighteousness. He alone can bring peace with our maker. He has become our peace. He's broken down every wall. And believe in your heart that Jesus died and rose again. It doesn't mean you fully understand and can explain it to everyone, but you just, you're, there's faith there to say, Jesus, I believe you're greater than death itself. And so you're worthy of my life. And I just say with my mouth what I believe in my heart. Jesus, you're Lord. Here's my life. I give it to you. Surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. Let him take responsibility for your life. And watch the peace come. Because your life is now in his hands. Lord, I bless this body of believers as they go into their week. May they go out with joy and be led forth with peace. And may the mountains and the hills break forth before them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Northwest Church, go to our website, nwcfoursquare.org or download our app in any of the app stores by searching Northwest Foursquare Church. Music